Hello, listeners. It's that time of year again to listen to our Lowell graduate students talk about their research and get your feedback at none other than Squid Bottoms Brewery. Squid Bottoms Brewery, where our glasses of ink will make you think. While it's not rare that we see the fruits of the students' work from the auspicious Tower of Learning, it is unparalleled to hear about it in their own words and voice. I'm particularly excited this year because my little niece is going to be one of the speakers. Uh, It seems like only yesterday that she was expanding my world by pointing out the difference between Globulos and Globulons. While I'm sure I echo your excitement for this event, I do want to hear your voice, so feel free to write in with your thoughts and feelings. As always, thanks for listening. Hi everyone, I'm Jess. And I'm Catherine, and welcome to Across the Klein, the podcast where we explore the unusual ways we can meet in the middle. Okay. Hi, everybody. Um, We're so excited today to have Bruce Kirchhoff and Faith Kearns talking to us about science communication from two very different perspectives and somewhat different backgrounds. So I'll let them go ahead and introduce themselves. Um, Do you want to start, Bruce? Sure. I'm Bruce Kirchhoff. I'm a botanist. I trained a long time ago at Duke University for my PhD and studied flower development in the culinary gingers and bananas. I've worked on those for a number of years, but a number of other different things, all kind of from a morphological, non-molecular perspective. I trained so long ago that molecular genetics was only existing for things like Chlamydomonas when I trained, and I wanted to look at flowers. So I never made the transition to molecular work. So I was kind of a traditional developmental morphologist working on flowers and stems and a number of other plant parts, but mainly flowers. So I got, I don't even know how I got interested in scientific communication, probably through teaching, probably through having a very strong growth mindset. And I would always try to do a little bit better next year than I did the year before. And slowly through that, got a little bit better at communicating, started offering workshops through the Botanical Society of America. And at one of those workshops or when a editor saw one of those workshops being offered. She invited me to write a book about it for a publisher, a UK publisher called Kavi. I was really very pleased with the offer, both because I wanted to do it and because um, Kavi is a nonprofit that puts all of its um, income into development work in the third world. So go out there and buy the book and help development in the third world at the same time. I think it's a really great opportunity. I'm really excited to be working with them. I've really enjoyed it. So that's a brief history of kind of how I got here. And uh, yeah, so I'm Faith Kearns, and I um, have sort of been doing communication for longer than I've been a scientist. So I have a very strange background in a certain way in that I um, started working as a work-study student in the athletics department of my undergrad university and um, was working in communications while majoring in environmental science. And it was an interesting thing because as an environmental science major, people are always like, why aren't you working in a lab? Um, All that kind of stuff. And 
all I could say was I really love the communications work and everybody I worked with was like, why aren't you majoring in communications? Um, and at the time, there wasn't really a straightforward path to becoming a science communicator. That 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 word phrase wasn't even really used um, at the time. And this was in the, the mid 90s. And um, I ended up luckily getting a, an internship after graduate school with the Ecological Society of America in their public affairs office. Um, and that's where I was able to kind of bring to, together the two skill sets I had in science and uh, in, in communications. And um, that kind of turned into really a full-fledged career. I ended up going and getting a doctorate at UC Berkeley, uh, where I focused on freshwater ecology. Um, but I knew the entire time that I wanted to be a full-time science communicator. And so that was really the work that I've pursued. And I've done that inside and outside of academia. I've worked for a couple of nonprofits. I've worked for the government. Um, and then I've spent a majority of my career working in a sort of hybrid academic uh, staff positions at the University of California primarily. Um, and currently work in Water Institute where I do full-time science communication work. And I, the impetus for me writing my book was really... Um, about the fact that a lot of the science communication stuff that's out there and the training is very much focused on beginners. Um, and as somebody who uh, does science communication full time, uh, I was not able to really learn so much past a beginner phase, um, you know. And so I started reflecting on my own experiences working primarily on very controversial issues like water in California, wildfire, um, and that's really where my book, which focuses on uh, science communication and emotional and contentious environments uh, where there can often be trauma um, comes from. And uh, I really had to make it up as I went along and kind of pave the way for my own work because a lot of people um, still think there's uh, not enough focus on the beginner, um, whereas I kind of think that there's much more room for a more uh, advanced practitioner conversation. Yeah, Faith, that's really clear from your book. And it's one thing I really appreciated about the book is that it does go uh, a deep dive into a lot of very advanced uh, subjects that a professional science communicator would need to take into account. Lots of nice examples, lots of real world kind of examples in the book. So uh, I, I really appreciated it from those aspects that you've already highlighted. Uh, since I didn't introduce my, my work, I'd say that my work is focused on a very different audience. It is focused on those beginners, a story, trying to take a storytelling approach to a beginning scientific communication. I also am concerned about how science is communicated to the public, um, but I have a very, very long-term approach, not that you don't, I, I, I know you do also. Um, <clears throat> I have a very long-term approach to how I want to address that by I really hope that we can get to a place where all the graduate students in the country and really in the world are trained in some way in scientific communication, if only to speak to someone outside of their small little niche of, of scientists, people who work in their lab, who they can use all of the technical terms with. They need to be, I'd like to be able to see them to speak intelligently and clearly to someone. Well, let's say, take me as a kind of a general scientist who, you know, I have, a, I have my own little niche, but I'd like to know things about um, meteorology. I'd like to be able to understand things about computer science. I'd like to be able to understand things about math. And right now, I try to look at some of those communications about those, not from not from professional communicators, 
but what graduate students write up as an abstract or give a talk or things, and I get lost pretty fast. So I think they could be done a lot in a lot better a lot better ways. And my hope is that once graduate students and then young faculty are good at talking to someone who is a scientist but outside their their specialty, a fraction of those people are going to want to talk to the public about their own work, especially because I really feel very strongly that you know the public as a just a normal person will really trust another person what we get on the media a lot is talking heads talking about science and there isn't a lot of trust for that it's the old formula of, um, you know trying to present more facts and we know that doesn't work but if there's a personal connection with someone personal connection with someone in your community who's you know talking at a library or doing a pub talk or something, you know, where you actually know the person and you can know that they work just down the street from you, I think that has a much better impact, especially if they're talking about their own research. As I say, we're a long way from being at this place now. I'm not denigrating anything that anyone's doing who's doing pub talks and talking to libraries and things. They're doing it now. I just want to see a lot more of it. I hope to see it. And that's going to take time. Yeah, thank you both for being on our podcast. And um, I guess like a question to start off with is, uh, how do you both define like communicating your science well, um, whether it's like people in your little niche or outside of it? And like what, yeah, what are like key, I guess like traits that someone should have to be able to communicate their science very well? Faith and I are uh, pointing at each other. We can see each other here on Zoom and each of us is doing a little pointing and say, you go next. Um, well, you know, I, I like stories, but I realize this word story is jargon. It's story, stories are storyteller jargon. And so I want to try to break that down a little bit and say, what's, what's a story to a scientist? A story, I think, for a scientist is you say something about the background of your work, you say, you know, what was known before I start doing my work? What then was the problem or the issue or what was lacking in that work? Why do I, why am I doing what I'm doing? You know, what is it that I'm addressing? And then you can talk a little bit about what you did to address that without going in tremendous detail. If you're talking to someone outside their field, they don't know how to, you know, how you set every little dial on the microscope or the PCR machine or whatever it is you're using that deep. They don't know. To, they don't need to know all of those details outside of your lab, outside of the very narrow area that needs to know those details. The people in your very narrow area need it, but most people don't. Most people, scientists, don't need to know that. So, a general, in a general way, what you did, and then say, why is this important? What did this? What did this change? You know, we had this this problem or this um knowledge of the field that existed before you did something and now you did something what did that change now that those basic parts those basic four parts are pretty familiar to i think graduate students because they are <clears throat> know them as the four parts that you would write when you were writing a thesis or a paper or all of those things that is a story so why am i saying we need to change something are students telling stories already and i think that the problem there are two problems here. One, most students and most faculty do not highlight what the major conclusion of their research is, and that appears two places in this 
sequence of four things. It appears in what question are you addressing, and it appears at the end in what what is the significance of that. So if they're if they're not paying attention to those two things, where are they putting a lot of attention? Faculty and graduate students. They're putting a lot of attention to the stuff in the middle, the stuff where they spent all their time, the stuff about what they did, and the little details of what they did. Those are important things. I'm not denigrating that at all. Those are incredibly important things, but they're not important to someone outside your narrow area. The people outside your narrow area want to know the, want to know what the problem is, and what how did your work address that problem? How did it change it? How did it change the world? So that's what I try to do. I I try to focus on those things. I try to get young scientists to let's frisk give an example. Write a title. Write a title for your talk, write a title for your poster, write a title for your paper that expresses in the title your main conclusion. Not a title that says, I worked in this area, but this is what you should take home from this this paper. And then when someone reads that title, they can say, oh, my goodness, I would like to know more about that. That's pretty interesting that they, they had that finding. Now I'm going to go in and I'm going to dig into the paper and find out. So that would be my answer. And now I'm going to point at Faith. Yeah. So thanks, Bruce. Um, yeah. So Catherine, that's a really good and, and actually fairly complicated question um, because I feel like, you know, just depending on your role, your sense of success uh, might be really, really different. And so, you know, I have colleagues who I think um, might consider going viral on Twitter, a science communication success, right? Or going, having a viral video on YouTube, right? Um, or, you know, having so many followers on Instagram or whatever, right? So, and those are, those are all successes in some ways, you know, I think it really just depends on what you set out as your goal and then whether you meet that or not. Um, and then you, you know, if you look societally, people might say uh, an increase in say NSF funding or something like that might come as a result of successful science communication, um, institutions have different goals for science communication. And then I think at the practitioner level, um, it's I think it's fairly dependent on the person and their role. And so for me, a lot of what I'm trying to do is become a trustworthy um, source of uh, knowledge on certain topics, right? And so I very much view myself as somebody who's integrated into a larger collaborative community that works on, say, water issues or wildfire issues um, in the West, uh, Western U.S. or the state of California. And so how I can kind of operate with a lot of integrity while also me saying what needs to be said at certain times, what is uh, scientifically based and um, accurate. <laughs> and, you know, regardless of maybe what the power or the political consequences might be, it's a really fine line to try to navigate to remain a sort of trusted partner in a lot of these situations where science is only one small component of what might be happening when it comes to maybe decision making or even just um, trying to change a paradigm about how people think about a particular issue, again, say water in the Western United States, right? So for me, a lot of it comes down to how I work as opposed to any particular outcome at any given time. Yeah, and I and I suppose that's important to actually like figure out 
um, through working with people, how you can form these these relationships of trust, right? They're not every not every relationship is going to be the same. And so I guess that's that comes to this like question of like, how do you build trust in science communication? Because it does seem super important, not only like, you know, for effective communication, but, you know, so that you can have this bi-directional aspect of learning from the community, not have the deficit model like you were talking about, Bruce, of, you know, just thinking that we need to give everyone facts. So I guess, um, yeah, Bruce, you're, in your book, you you are um, you do focus on like co- some contexts in which you can talk to people. But a lot of your book is like presentations and posters where you don't get that um, opportunity to get to learn your audience. Um, Faith, are you, are you ever in that situation or do you, and do you feel like you can apply your methods um, and, and kind of like, yeah, like still have this emotional connection while not being able to have this bi-directional um, feedback with your audience? How do you build trust in these contexts? Sorry, my my dog is barking background. Oh, <laughs> maybe Bruce wants to step in for a second. Get her to speak. Well, again, as a graduate student or a young faculty member, giving talk, even a talk, you know, to a scientific audience that is not in your narrow area, and that's most meetings, most big meetings you're going to go to are going to be like that. You know, I would just say, be yourself. And I've seen some great talks by graduate students. In fact, some of the um, talks, uh, the rapid talks, you know, I don't know what they call them specifically at the Botanical Society of America, which is where I've mainly seen them, but the graduate talks that are there that are like seven minutes long or less, in fact, seven minutes long with questions, so maybe five minutes thing, you know, are really in quite excellent, better than a lot of the faculty talks, I have to say. And one of the reasons is, because the students who are comfortable getting up and doing that um, are themselves. They feel they feel comfortable enough, not just with their material, but with being themselves in front of an audience There's, that you feel like they're sharing something about themselves. They're not just sharing facts about what they did, but they're sharing the facts that they did this and it means something to them and, it, and they're passionate about it. And I think that that's how I would see connecting with audiences very well is sharing your passion about this. You know, we want to get away from this idea that the scientist is, you know, the white-coated automata that is up there or any place, you know, in the background, perhaps, you know, sharing the great knowledge that they have. It's a, it's a um, trope that is overused, was never true, but which some scientists acted out, and fortunately. And I think we're moving already moving away from that in some of the graduate student talks I see, and I just want to encourage it. Yeah, I mean, be yourself. Share your passion. Let people see that you're doing this because you love what you're doing. And that'll connect with your audience. Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting. Like, I, I definitely want to also say that, um, you know, the kind of focus that Bruce has on on training, um, particularly folks that are starting out, is so, so, so important. I mean, those are certainly all skills that I learned. Um, I just kind of took it on as a full-time job and um, went beyond that, right? Like that takes you to a certain point uh, when it's going to become a full-time career. But I think that those skills are so, so fundamental just in in terms of being able to write well and speak well and, you know, do good design work on a poster, all of that kind of stuff. Those are just to me very fundamental skills that that all scientists should have. And I, 
I think Bruce and I also agree that much more training needs to be available for folks um, across the board on these things. And I think that's true of more advanced training as well. And then, you know, when it comes to, you know, whether I do all that stuff, I would say the reason I think it's important is, yes, I still draw on those skills all the time, right? Like I still have to do a lot of presentations and design good graphics and give good talks and tell stories and do all of that stuff, you know, and I, and I make a point in almost every talk I give to talk about the fact that, you know, it, it really, again, it depends kind of how you define science communication. And for me, an unfortunate component of things is that we have really stopped at this level of kind of giving a good talk, right? Like in a lot of ways, the epitome of good science communication has become like a, a TED talk. Right. Um, that's something that people see as like a really valuable kind of thing to be able to achieve. And and I certainly have to do things like that. And I, you know, every time I say I realize the irony that I am actually performing this role as I'm telling you that it's not enough. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, for me, the major point is to say that that um, that shouldn't be the end game of our science communication efforts. There's got to be a lot of work that goes on beyond that. Right. And then I think even within some of that, what people might consider more unidirectional science communication, just adding even a listening component to literally anything you're doing uh, can help a lot, whether that's even working on social media, where you're really trying to pay attention a lot more to what other people say instead of kind of waving your own flag constantly, which is a very uncomfortable part of things has to be done as well. But I think, you know, just just learning to listen Um I've seen people be very effective at giving good presentations by starting things with a question. Um, you know, that may not be something that a beginner is super ha uh, happy to take on, right? Because it can kind of mess up your flow while you're practicing. But as you move on in your career, just even for me, I'll start asking people how they feel, you know, and and even in a big room, people will kind of, you know, talk about whatever is going on with them. And then suddenly that becomes something that's much more in the room. It's not just me sort of giving a talk, it starts to involve everybody. So I think there are ways that if you're if your goal is to become more multidirectional communicative, you can introduce that kind of stuff in literally any kind of science communication that you're doing. Hey, can you give us an example of how you might use a listening um uh, some type of listening in a I mean a very concrete example. You got some examples in your book, you know, mm -hmm. who We've got kind of the theoretical explanation now, but we get a concrete example of how that happens. Sure. I mean, I think, you know, if you're say I'm talking about um, wildfire, for example, I might start off a talk by asking who in this room has experienced directly a wildfire, in part because I want to know so that as I'm talking, I'm not going to trip over the fact that somebody's had and it's happening increasingly, right? Like very traumatic experiences of a wildfire. And here I am just like talking about it as if it's this, you know, thing that's totally abstracted through the people in the room's lives when it really isn't. And the same is true for flooding or or any number of things, just kind of asking who's had an experience, how they felt about it. And then I have to be able to integrate that kind of into how I'm going to proceed in my talk, which is why I would say it's it's challenging, right? Like if you're in my in my very first few years as a graduate student presenting at a science conference, I would not have done it that way. And certainly, um, even now at a like a traditional conference talk, that's not really what 
the people they're listening are looking for. <laughs> they're looking for more of a download. But I do a lot, a lot, a lot of public talks. And so I think that that, you know, is where it comes in a little bit more, just really being able to kind of get a feel for who is in the room. I might, even in a group of practitioners, I might start off saying, you know, who who comes from a journalism background, who comes from just kind of trying to bring other people into the room with me so that I'm not just the person talking on the stage, right? Just smile would you like that. How would you find yourself in front of an audience like that? How would you have that opportunity to talk to a group of wildfires, et cetera? Well, partly it's because I work in the cooperative extension system. And so that's just a large part of what we do. It's what I've been doing my whole career um, is, you know, getting uh, invited to come give a talk about X, Y, or Z by somebody who works in a county in California. Um, and certainly these days, I just get invited to give a lot of talks. But I think that, you know, earlier in my career, it would have just been because my role was as somebody who worked um, at a statewide level on a certain level, a uh, certain kind of issues. And I would often get brought in to be part of a panel where maybe um, other people had expertise locally, but I had it at a statewide level or, or whatever. Um, I don't, um, I have not been particularly good about seeking out um, I could say it's just been part of part of the roles that I've had. Yeah, I think that would be true of like 99.9% .9 of scientists that we're not very good at seeking out those opportunities. And I think that for a young scientist, that's especially a problem. And so I really admire um, young graduate students, especially I see doing this, go, going, you know, setting up pub talks or things. And they may not always be the speakers, but you know, they arrange for the people to come out and have those opportunities or, well, I don't know, people arrange their own podcasts or something like that, you know, to talk about important scientific issues. I can't, don't know where I got that idea, but something else I might admire if I ever encountered that. I did want to pick up on one other thing that um, you said about being able to adapt in front of an audience. And I think that's a very important advanced skill. It's not something I talk about in the book, but it's something that I think is really important. And I would encourage graduate students and faculty members, if they had time, and I know they don't, but I still say this anyway, to do improv. I, I find that improv, even short form, kind of joking improv is very helpful because it really puts you into the moment. It shuts down your rational mind a little bit and gets you really thinking, listening to what the last person said and reacting to it. And so that when you get up there on a stage and something happens that's uh, unprepared, that you didn't expect, you have been in that kind of um, that kind of situation many times, and you are much better able to, to deal with it and to to adapt. And I think that was a, something about behind what you were saying, Faith. Would you agree? Yeah, definitely. I I will say um, improv is not my thing at all. I think, you know, I know a lot of people are drawn to it and I know it's um, offered by some of the bigger science communication training groups, um, but I think there are ways to develop those skills. So just for folks who are listening, if if the sound of improv is just a like no go for you, which there are many people who fall into that camp, um, I think there are plenty of other ways. Um, you know, even for me, I do a lot of contemplative practice work, which I've written about just in terms of like being able to be where you are, take a breath, like be a human being and kind of not be, you know, when I, when I first started, I remember the first talk I gave at graduate school, which was just to my peers, like in a, in a seminar setting. 
I rehearsed that talk like crazy. I memorized the whole thing. I, you know, I, I was very, and, and I think had I been interrupted, had I been, you know, whatever, it would have been really scary for me when I first started out, you know? And so I say this after many, many years of trying different things um, that I think there are many, many ways to come to that skill set, you know? And, and part of it is just, developing a comfort in yourself with being where you are at that moment and not being afraid of other people and what they might say. Um, and that comes with that comes with practice and it can come with all sorts of practices, whether it's improv or meditation or whatever. There are lots of different ways to get that skill set. I've been shaking my head yes that no one can see. I've been shaking my head yes the whole time. That is the downside of an audio podcast. You can't see all the facial expressions. So I guess like while we're kind of on that topic of not being able to see like what the people speaking are doing um, in a podcast, like we've talked a lot, I think, about like the words we're using, but like what about the other aspects of communication, like our body language or as Bruce has mentioned, like posters, presentations, slides, et cetera. I'll take posters after Faith talks about whatever she'd like to talk about. Um, yeah, I think Catherine, are you asking just specifically like how how you physically handle yourself during during talks and things like that? Yeah, like that, or like kind of especially when you're talking with uh, like people not in your field and especially controversial subjects or very emotional subjects. If you get yeah. kind of a sudden like response you weren't expecting. Yes. And so, yeah, for me, I guess, you know, I, I do talk about that a little bit in the book that I think there is this embodied work that we're doing, right? And it has, that has been a challenge in science in general. I think that we kind of view ourselves primarily as like our heads, our brains, right? And so this idea that, that your body is also there is sort of an interesting component to try to bring in. Um, but one of the ways I talk about it the most is particularly, again, navigating like these very emotional, contentious situations is that your body often gives you clues as to what is going on, right? So um, I teach workshops and and in one where I talk about conflict, I show a video of um, some scientists in conflict at a community meeting. And I the first thing I usually ask people is, how did that make you feel? And a lot of times people, scientists, you know, in, in the group will sort of talk about how it made them think, right? <laughs> and so that's a very interesting thing too, is like the response is often a thought versus like, I'm really asking, how do you feel? And so then we kind of have to drop down a little bit into like, how did that make you feel? And then a lot of times I'll ask people, did you notice that you had a knot in your stomach? Um, did you feel a little bit nauseous when that happened? Did you feel your palms sweating? Did you feel, you know, and try to kind of view that as um, really important feedback to pay attention to. A lot of the the work that I do now emerged from really paying attention, not only to my own reactions to things, but, you know, when you're talking in a group, I'm sure you've all had this experience. Um, you can feel the mood in a room shift. Absolutely. If you are open to it. Right. And so do you just plow right through that <laughs> or do you attempt to respond to it in some way? And I guess for the stage I'm at, it's been really important to learn to respond to that. Um, there are times when I can't, absolutely, right? But um, in lots of situations, I think it's fairly inauthentic for me to not respond to what's actually starting to happen. And so uh, in that situation, I have to call a lot on my own 
uh, intuitive bodily sense of what's happening. And so again, cultivating that is, is something that can come in many, many ways. Um, but it's, it's been an important part for me of learning how to, to navigate these kinds of spaces versus, you know, I think sometimes scientists can get caught up in like wanting to make very rational arguments. And a lot of the examples I use in the book are kind of these examples of we can want, we can wish all we want for people to be completely rational. But there are lots of cases, you know, like there's one in the book of, about drinking recycled water and how a lot of people have um, an absolute sort of baseline disgust response to that. I don't have it because I, I, you know, trained as a geologist and view all water on this earth as recycled. So I don't but have it. It's just like, yeah, of course it's recycled. Um, but, you know, a lot of people do. They just find that concept totally disgusting. And that is a semi-irrational response, although you could argue in some ways it's not. We all want to stay healthy, right? And so our sense of what um, good water is really important to us staying alive as humans. And so anyway, just navigating that that there might be what you might consider an irrational response to something and taking that on and really trying to see what's under that is just so important. And I think so much of that signal comes from your body. Yeah, those are really nice examples. And <clears throat> although I completely agree with them, I would not have thought of them. So posters are very different. I mean, we're just kind of really switching gears completely when we talk about posters. They have only a minimal real relationship to what Faith has just been talking about because they're visual mediums of communicating. And now notice what I just said. I said a poster is a visual meeting method, visual method of communicating. So many posters are not visual methods of communicating. They're walls of text. They try to be written methods of communicating. And in my mind, that's really a misuse of, of the medium. And we're starting to see some switch away from that. Mike Morrison has done more than anyone, I think, in that. Mike Morrison with the work on better posters and maybe um, Catherine and Jess, you could put a link to Mike Morrison's work in the podcast feed so people can look at that. He's got a great design for a poster that is not a wall of text. And I won't go into too much detail, I don't think, about Mike's uh, design for the poster because people can look it up on their own. But I, I will say this, that we can think of posters, if we don't think of them as textual, we should be thinking of them as pictures that the whole poster should be looked at as a picture and we should think about reading it as a picture. Now, when you think about looking at a picture, what draws your eye? It's certainly not the text that's on the picture, it, but it can be the graphics on the picture. It can be the use of color in the way that it's done. We often read these things from left to right in cultures where our reading, our writing goes from left to right. Other cultures might read them slightly differently. And we can take all these things to account, to, at least to some extent, in designing a poster. For instance, we might put a large graphic, one of the most important graphics, in the center of the poster. And we might have a title that really expresses the main finding of the poster, as I talked about later. Maybe that's still at the top of the poster. So let's just look at those two things. So You've got a title that expresses the finding, not the area you worked in, you know, not anything else, but exactly what what the takeaway message is. What did you what you found? What you want the people to to remember? 
and that's in a big font. And then right in the middle, they see the supporting evidence for that. And then maybe on the sides of the poster, you've got some supporting things, a little bit of text, probably in bullet points, and that, ex that explains in a little more detail. Well, that's a much better way of communicating than if you have to go up to the poster and you start reading at the top, and the first thing you read is an abstract of the poster. We'll come back to that in a second. And then you read, there's a background of the poster, and then there's a methods and things, and you're done reading. You're done reading by this time, and you don't want to know anything about this, and you jump to the end and say, well, what the heck did these guys find? Just tell me what the results are. So just avoid that reaction and tell them what the results are at the beginning and give them the main part of the evidence, if you can, in a visual form as best you can. It's hard. It's harder in some fields and easier in other fields, but um, in just at least have the intent to avoid a lot of text and play with different types of designs. And as again say, Mike Morrison's designs are fantastic, and so go take a look at those. I said I come back to an abstract because there is absolutely no reason to have an abstract on your poster. Your poster is an abstract of your work. The only reason you would want an abstract on your poster is if it was so impossible to understand what you said on your poster that you felt like you needed to explain it to somebody in simple terms, and then you put an abstract on it. So when you see a poster with an abstract on it, that's pretty much one as a person walking through a poster session of a thousand posters. You can just pretty much ignore those because that person isn't going to communicate with you very well. So don't put abstracts on your poster. Tell people what you found and do it graphically. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm thinking about this, um, you know, yeah, this idea of like, uh, yeah, that we don't want to know all the details, but also that like so much of science is the process, right? And I think that um, I sometimes worry that if we are like too straight to the point, it like feels like, okay, we did this thing, we solved the solution and the case is closed. Or like, you know, we solved the problem, the case is closed. The story is over, right? Um, and so I, I just wonder, like, you know, how do you go about communicating science as this ongoing process full of, like, uncertainty, not really, like, ever, like, reaching, like, an end, kind of? And, and sometimes I worry that the, the hero's journey can be, like, a, um, a structure that kind of implies that there is, like, a single climax, you've solved the problem, and then it's over, um, you do talk about though, Bruce, in your book of, of how you can tell a hero's journey, like a cyclical narrative structure where it's like you return back to the beginning a little bit. And, and I like the idea of that, of like, um, a spiral progression instead where it's like you come full circle and like you've learned something, so, but you're still kind of at the beginning. Um, so I guess I'm, I'm, I'm kind of asking about, yes, how do we talk about process in science? How do we communicate that it's ongoing? How do we communicate uncertainty? And is the hero's journey like always the right narrative structure for that? Or what are the limitations to that? So <laughs> there's a bunch of questions for both of you guys. So I, <clears throat> since you mentioned the book, I'll continue for a minute. And first, let me say what the hero's journey is. And so we've actually done the hero's journey already. Hero's journey is, again, storyteller jargon. And so let's try to avoid that. The hero's journey is you tell, you say some background, you say the problem that you're working on, you say what you did to address that problem, you say what changed, what's different after that. That is actually the hero's journey. 
So it's the base, and it's what I've called the basic story structure because it's a very easy one to understand, and it fits really well with the process of science. Now, so what do you? How do you um, do this spiral that Jess was just talking about? So when you come back to the bottom and everything's changed, you've done something and you've changed the world, you've changed what was known in your field, you've never solved all the problems. And so, you know, in the hero's journey, we say there was a pre-existing world, the hero does something, the world changes. But there's still a world there and it has certain characteristics and there are problems in that world. And so then you can you identify what those problems are. People do that by saying, you know, the need for future work. I don't particularly like that phrase, you know, future work and things, but, you know, there's got to be a way we can put that into better terms that says, you know, we know more now than we did before, but there are still these things that are unresolved and, or, I, I don't know, I, we need to work on, I think we need to work on that a little more. I think there's a, I'm sure there's a way to do it. I'm just not improvising it very well right now. So that's what I would say is the spiral. And if you, if you were giving a longer talk, it's much easier to see how the spiral plays out in a long talk because you can break a long talk into a series of these four parts that I'm talking about. So you introduce your main topic at the beginning. You say what the problem is with that. You say what you did. You say you reached this conclusion. You did these experiments and this came out, but there was still this other problem. And then you do the whole thing again. That this other problem, you set it up, you're back in another um, at the next level and you go through the next stages of the next experiments that you did. And so you can run through a bunch of experiments in that way, kind of layering this story structure at one on top of the other, taking people through a sequence. And that gives the impression then that nothing is completely solved, that it's a process that you're going on, that each, pro that each question leads to more kinds of questions. It's harder to, I think it's harder to do that in a very short talk, in a very short talk to the general public. But it's, you know, if you have the time, it's probably, you can probably make it work. I want to turn it over to Faith and see what she has. Yeah, I don't know. Again, these are like very good questions and super, you know, wide ranging. It's so interesting as you talk about this spiral story structure, because it reminds me actually of a sort of um, a slight divergent, which is just thinking there's a Jungian analyst, Marion Woodman, who is a sort of feminist, um, did a lot of the feminist critique of traditional psychoanalysis. And part of it was this idea that, you know, you're you're almost on a slinky throughout your life where it's, you know, you might, you might um, come full circle on a certain question, but you're at a different level on the slinky, right? And so, and I've seen this in my own life where it's like, how am I still dealing with the same kinds of issues I had when I was 14, but they're just sort of at this other no juncture in my life. And so I think some of that, that spiral form is really interesting. The other thing I'll say that I, one of the, the lessons that I've really tried to take part is there's a sociologist named Zainab Tufeki who wrote this really great article um, in Scientific American, I think, uh, maybe four years ago. And she was talking about the last season of Game of Thrones, which you may or may not have watched. But the basic idea is that um, people really hated the last season um, for the most part of Game of Thrones. And that was, I guess, in her, her argument was that... Um, the books that the, the story was based on had ended. And so the writers kind of took on actually this more hero's journey, like us, they, they elevated singular characters and sort of followed their arcs. 
And the, what had made the story so successful in the beginning was that it was very much a collective story, right? So like in the very first episode of Game of Thrones, they kill off who you think is actually one of the main characters. And it, and so you sort of think, oh, this story is going to end. But the, the, the cast of characters is so strong that it doesn't matter if you kill off one of the main characters, right? And so she was sort of framing this in the in the idea, uh, a little oppositional to this idea of a hero's journey in that it was a more of a community journey, you know? And so I really took that to heart, actually, in writing my book, where I was really trying to, instead of following a couple of people, I was trying to look at this broad array of people doing science communication work and kind of bring together all their experiences and tell sort of more of a collective story about what I think is going on in the field, right? And so I think as Bruce is saying, um, a lot of it is the medium. Like you may or may not have time for that in in various things, right? And so that's why I like to talk about the fact that I just do think there are so many science communications, right? Like the, there's an S there and there isn't sort of one right way to do it. It really depends on the context that you're working in. And so, you know, for me, if I, I have, I write a lot for our Water Institute blog and I do a lot of stories in progress for that, you know, and I think I, I often am like, we're, we're basically, this person is starting out this research process and we're going to check back with them in a couple of years, right? <laughs> so um, I think if you have a certain community of people who are listening to what you're saying and you're able to, you know, kind of touch base with them over time, it is actually um, something that you can do. But I think, again, that is viewing that as a long-term investment in science communication over what may be an entire career or somebody else's career, the the trajectory of a bill, the trajectory of a set of studies, et cetera, you know? And so I think it 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 really depends kind of where where you're working, but there are lots of ways to do it. Yeah, I, I want to emphasize something that Faith is saying, and I've We'll put it this way. I said, I, I've made my job very easy because I've narrowed the scope of who I'm talking to, the audience that I'm talking to, and the kind of scientific communication I'm talking about. So it's very easy for me compared to what Faith has to do, where she's dealing with a much broader audience, a much different, much variety, of, larger variety of ways of scientific communication. So, um, you know, I really, I really appreciate that. And her book is really good on that is that it gives you a much broader view of what scientific communication is when you're working as a professional like that. And my my work is very, very narrow in those ways. I'm not denigrating my work. I mean, it's really important stuff. It's just doesn't have that same characteristic. I agree. I mean, I again, I think, you know, the, the work that you're doing, Bruce, is really these are fundamental building blocks, you know, to to whatever comes afterward. And you can spend a lifetime just trying to really perfect certain pieces of that. Um, and, and that's a perfectly good way to spend time as well. Like, I think, like, that's why I really am an advocate for thinking about science communication as, as just having many different ways of doing it very well. And, you know, peer-to-peer -peer science communication is certainly um, a really fun building block when it comes to science, right? Like just so important and can give you some of the skills that you need to start to think about things if you want to uh, start communicating in other ways. Yeah, Faith, I'm glad that you brought up the um, the, the feminist critique um, because that actually is why I brought up the this question with the hero's journey myself because I do read also like some feminist critiques on narrative structures 
uh, the other day I was reading Laura Rust, who um, wrote this this paper called What Can a Heroine Do? And it just talks about like um, two kinds of modes of narrative structures. And I just I'm putting this forth to see if it if it's um, relevant, maybe like when in times when we can't use the hero's journey, like she says that one mode is this narrative mode that concerns itself with events that are connected by chronological order that they occur and voluntary human actions like usually a single character um and this there's and then in contrast and, and it's about like actions you know like we did this we solved this problem um and i think that that's really good for when you're when you have like um a single like I guess like for describing your own research and the experiments you're doing to solve certain problems. I was thinking, you know, as I was reading it, I'm writing a book chapter right now. And I was like, how can I um, have this more like uh, this synthesis of like all the collective work that people have done and not have a singular character um, and not necessarily have this chronological like I, I maybe I should go about it chronologically, but I don't know if this second mode is is relevant to our listeners of this lyrical mode, um, and maybe it's not useful for science, but it exists without chronology or causation, but the connections between ideas are associative. So events, scenes, memories are circling around an unspoken, invisible center, and maybe that can be like a scientific concept or something like that. So I guess I wonder if you guys see any place for that kind of like structure or sort of what your solutions would be to to talking about like just broader ideas like you know like writing a review paper synthesizing something like that um <laughs> so i'll leave you guys with i i guess i would say that i think that there's plenty of room for i would say i would call these more poetic pro approaches perhaps i don't know if that's fair or not i I think our our pr problem with them is that we have to get people to slow down in order to appreciate them. And that's kind of a big problem in science right now. So while while I agree that they're tremendously valuable, I don't know when you've got, you know, 15 new papers that came across your desk today and five of them are really relevant to your work and you'd really like to know about the other 10 and you've got to go teach right now. And then you've got to, and then you've got, you know, 40 papers to grade tonight after you get home that a person is going to have time to slow down enough to approach an approach that takes multiple perspectives on something and slowly, slowly comes into a, a, a conclusion. So I, I think there's a, there's a place for it, but we're going to have to find a, it's you know it's going to be a small place I'm afraid right now in in the way science is done I that may not be a good thing what I'm saying but I'm afraid that it's it's realistic I think even you know the things that I'm saying I'm asking graduate students to do I, I realize what a big ask they are but so anyway Jess I think it's great that you're thinking about that and thinking about how to, how to do that and if I mean if and if you've got an outlet for that kind of writing that they're going to accept it you know you know go for it. And it'd be, it might be really cool. I'd like to see it. Yeah, I definitely agree, Jess. I'm very interested to read what you uh, end up with. And, you know, I for me, I love that kind of approach to things. I mean, I think a huge challenge for me and sort of wanting to follow a traditional academic path was 
I literally cannot stand scientific papers. And it's because they require you to take what I think is such a creative process, right? The research process is incredibly creative. But you would almost never know that from reading a paper written about that research, right? And so um, even when I was in graduate school, I finished you know, 20 years ago, and I was still at the time like, is this really the best we can do? You know, and I think there is good reason for it, right? And again, like people will argue that we are, you know, you're trying to look at replicability, you're trying to kind of be able to, you know, even what Bruce is talking about right now, we're in this just absolute information overload period. I have, Lord only knows, at least 100 papers in my uh, to read pile right now, and we'll see if I ever get to them. And, you know, and there is this way that because you expect to have an introduction and a you know, a, a methods, a results, a discussion, a conclusion section, you can easily go to the parts and kind of try to figure out, you know, what, what, what's what, and what's useful to you. And that is helpful, right? Um, and uh, as usual, I will say, I just don't think it's a great ending point. Um, but you have to be in the right position. And, and as Bruce is saying, I think you have to have the right outlet. And book chapters are certainly one of those places where you can do that. Um, I think books are uh, fantastic outlets for being able to, if you can find a, a press and a editor that's willing to work with you um, to do more experimental things. You know, for for me again with the book, I I really tried to do what I was saying, right? So I took an incredibly relational approach to writing a book about the importance of relationality in in science communication, and and it was a very process oriented book. It has no real chronological order. It has, you know, it's it's organized around themes, et cetera. And, um, uh, you know, it, it may or may not work. I have no idea, really. It's just that that's the way, that's what emerged from kind of trying to do, um, to walk the walk, I guess, which was, for me, what was the most important thing. I wasn't even trying to write something experimental. I was just trying to um, practice what I preached, I guess. So... You know, I think your your interests in that kind of thing, Jess, and, and this is where I think um, science communication is a really interesting turning point right now, right? Like a point I try to make all the time is that the people who are practicing science communication are actually also in the process of changing as we go what we think of as good science communication. And I, for one, am super here for it and very excited about it. So. Yeah, kind of to bounce off of what Jess asked, with like sort of um I guess our current structure for writing science being it kind of like an end all at the end because that's where the paper ends um but that's really not how science works it's very circular um like I feel like that's such a common misconception that people have about science it's like we solved the world not really we kind of figured out maybe this one thing works or it's less than 0.05 so maybe who knows but that's not really how like media outlets put it out. That's not really how the public perceives it. And I'm wondering as we're approaching kind of a future that where you're getting information constantly, where you're getting a lot of good information, but a lot of misinformation or disinformation. So how do you see all that coming into the future for communicating science? Well, <clears throat> For me, you know, I'm I'm not a fan fan of the media, and I haven't been for a long time. And I don't mean I'm not a fan of the right wing media or the left wing media. I think all media distorts. Some of it distorts more than others, 
and we see that more and more today. Some of it distorts tremendously, but all of it, to an extent, uh, distorts, and in ways that Catherine has just pointed out you know, about about science. It misrepresents what science is, and so you know, other than just turning it all off, which I have mostly done, I I read things on the web now from two two outlets. National Public Rodeo and the BBC. The BBC's reporting is actually quite good for the United States. Um, they cover the U.S. quite well and very objectively, it seems to me. Um, but aside from doing some reading on those things, I don't, I don't do much. But so, what else is the other? You know, what's the other solution? And I'm afraid that the things are that I think about are very long-term things. You know, the things that have really changed the world have not been media. Have not been things that came through the media. They've been things that have moved person to person in very personal ways among people. I mean, every religious movement is like that. They, none of those religious movements moved through media channels of any kind or electronic channels of any kind. They all move person to person. And so that's one of the deeper reasons, I think, that it's important to try to get graduate students talking about their own research to the public or even even just to other scientists. I mean, my starting point is other scientists, but my hope is that some point, percentage of those will talk to the other public because I think that something moves there. There's a possibility of something moving there in a deeper and more meaningful and more a way that could change things in much more than changing something surface that comes out of the media. So that's that's my feeling on it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, the whole disinformation, misinformation landscape is really interesting. Um, I ha I will say that at certain times I found it to be really distracting in a way, just because I, I agree with Bruce that um, a lot of the, a lot of the solution is sort of a person to person, or at least a, a small ecosystem of people to another small ecosystem of people, and that's why you know trust and sort of operating with integrity is so important. But I, it was really interesting. I read an article last week by Naomi Klein that was actually about um, RFK Jr. and a potential run for president. And you would think this would have nothing to do with science communication, um, except that there's a lot there about vaccines, right? Because um, he has been, he's done a lot of work in that arena. And one of the points that she made that really actually flipped me on my head a little bit was that she was basically saying that, um, we are in a landscape right now where it's so hard um, for people to just be straightforward and there are certain topics that um you know uh people who are elected for example and i think even you know media outlets are afraid to touch in a certain way for all sorts of various reasons there does become this information vacuum and her point was basically that you kind of need trustworthy people to fill that information vacuum and be able to say hard things, which is actually one of the key things that I'm trying to say in my book is that, you know, we have to, um, the science community has to get more comfortable with operating in conflict spaces in a way that isn't just like dismissing irrationality that isn't, you know, that really is actually able to navigate these very contentious topics in a trustworthy way. And so um, I still go back to that. I still think that that's such an important part of things is just 
being able to sit in in a space where there might be conflict because a lot of that that misinformation disinformation stuff does um require a certain level of steadfastness steadfastness in in having conversations and you know I'm, again i'm not somebody who thinks that you know uh, people should go on and and debate you know have one-on-one -on -one debates about very serious topics with you know sort of potentially unserious well the you know, oppositional perspectives, but at the same time, I think you know not not being willing to wade in on on contentious topics has also been a little bit to our detriment, you know. So um, it's a really to me, it's a very interesting and uh, influx thing now, especially as we're talking about AI and you know, there's just so much in terms of thinking about what a misinformation camp the landscape is going to look like the next five, ten, twenty years. You know, it's a uh, slightly scary honestly <laughs> you know that reminds me of um something that you wrote in your book faith that has always stuck with me i can't remember the exact wording so forgive me but it was something along the lines of like whenever we're telling someone they're wrong we're like implying that someone something that someone they love is wrong and that's been like such an impactful way that like i keep thinking about that when i'm trying to talk to the public about anything even if it's just like here's a snake it's native to this area and it's like not going to hurt you but like i can see where you know your parent might have told you that snakes are dangerous and yes there are dangerous snakes yeah that's actually um i i was debating whether to bring up that <laughs> particular part of the book um that was mila marshall uh who recently finished a doctorate at the university of illinois and um that was a really profound interview that that I did with Mila because, um, yeah, they were talking about kind of this idea that, um, and, and and talking specifically about vaccines, I think at the time, but it was basically saying like, you know, people are learning things from people they love, you know, from their family, from people they're in community with. And then you're kind of coming in saying that was wrong and, and, and says, you know, somebody needs to kind of be prepared to stand in the gap when when somebody is really um, having to confront this emotional piece having to do with maybe being given misinformation by somebody that they trust, right? And I, I really, truly think that's such a profound way to look at it. And if we were to actually take that statement seriously, I just, I do really think it would change a lot of how we think about, again, misinformation, disinformation, or at least where we thought about putting our energy when it comes to that stuff, right, is to just really realize that a lot of people aren't coming at things from a bad faith perspective. They're coming at things from, a, like you're saying, Catherine, maybe somebody said, stay away from all snakes, or um, in the area I grew up in Arizona, it might be like, kill all the snakes because, you know, uh, a bull snake looks just like a, a rattlesnake to somebody who's you know, uninitiated or, or even to me, I mean, they freak me out. So whatever, but, um, you know, so just thinking about stuff like that, where, you know, somebody was trying to keep you safe and then somebody else is telling you you're unsafe if you don't do this thing that this, that your mom told you about. Right. So how do you even start to, to contend with that? So I think, you know, we do have to have a lot of empathy and pot potentially some very different methods for dealing with that kind of thing than, than what we've got right now. So I have a story about misinformation I can tell about <clears throat> an event that my wife and I had. And <clears throat> so my wife, went, when she was growing up, went to a camp in Wisconsin for nine years. And so 
it was a girls' camp, and so the women in that camp made very close bonds with each other. One of the women now, as an adult, was posting things a year or so ago, almost two years ago now, on social media about vaccines and um, all other political kinds of things, very um, misguided, according to my way and my wife's way of looking at things, information. And my wife, I mean, they were good friends at camp. And so she tried to approach her about these things, always with love, always with emphasizing the relationship and things. It didn't do any good. I mean, it didn't, she wouldn't listen to anything. She just kept spewing out hate about um, the, all the various issues you can imagine. So um, eventually, Robert Kennedy came up and as evidence for the views that she had. And I, my wife asked me something about it. And I now I don't remember the exact details, but the result was that the woman sent my wife an email, the um, references from his the first chapter of Robert's book, implying that look at look at all this look at all this data that there is that supports these these views that vaccines are dangerous. And so I sat down with those and I started going through them one at a time. I checked the references you know, and tried to see what where they were saying and things. And they're just incoherent. They don't make any, it really didn't make any sense. They didn't, they, the references don't really have anything to do with what he's saying. And so I wrote up a page or two of stuff saying, going through the references and explaining what they are and then saying, well, I'm sorry, I don't have any more time to do this. I spent an hour and a half or two hours on it. And um, this has been my experience with Robert Kennedy. He looks very good on the surface, but when you dig into the details, you don't see, uh, it doesn't hold up. And my wife sent that to her, and she stopped posting stuff. I mean, it was a miracle. I mean, it, you know, wouldn't say it went, went to nothing, but it went down like 90% or more than 90%. And eventually she stopped. And then a month or so later, she just stopped. So, you know, I'm not sure I've ever sat down and tried to analyze that, but, you know, what are the, what are the elements there? So I was an expert. I wasn't confronting her directly. I was in the background. I was from someone that she trusted, you know, who had said my husband is, you know, a scientist and things, and she could ask me to look at something. And so it, it came through a trusted person, even though she did disagreed with everything my wife was saying politically and about vaccines. And um, and some I was some kind of an authority about this. And then I didn't approach it by telling her anything that she was wrong. I It was from a th about a third person. You know, I was I said about Robert Kennedy. Well, is Robert Kennedy trustworthy based on the things that he's saying here or the things that he's having as evidence? And there was really no evidence in the stuff he was saying. I mean, I just couldn't figure out why he had certain of those citations there. They didn't make any sense. And so I just pointed very nicely, pointed that out. So I don't know. I, I, I'm hoping that someone listening to this will take that and see what the meaning of that is, because it was an amazing experience and maybe there's something that someone can generalize from that and there's some way of working with misinformation there. I think that's such an important example because and I think what it is is that you directly engaged with their forms of evidence and I think that that's like what we often don't do we like we'll just throw our evidence against their evidence but what you did was you went in and you looked at their evidence and I've had a similar experience too with like a family member sending me something about 5G, like killing birds. And I went into the document, I looked and I was, and I, and I actually engaged with it seriously. And I think that's really important. And I think that we, 
as scientists sometimes have a hard time with that as humans because like we also have worldviews that we want to defend like strongly and I was just at a conference on communicating controversy and novelty in science communication and Andrew Reid was giving this example and this is maybe even to complicate things more but Andrew Reid published this paper a while ago that showed that sometimes vaccines um, can make more virulent viruses and people took that and were like and and we're like, well, we should never get vaccines. And so, you know, I mean, as he was talking about it, he was kind of dismissing people that that felt that way as crazies, you know. Um, but, you know, he was on Joe Rogan and he even admitted that Joe Rogan understood the science like completely. He but his interpretation was in a different direction. And so I think that's where we have to be at with science communication is realizing that the data doesn't speak for itself. And and coming to learn how multiple interpretations can arise and engaging with them, I guess. Hmm. <laughs> Nyla, I see we're approaching the hour. So um, we always like to conclude by asking our guests what they've learned from each other. So yeah, what have you two learned from each other today? So for me, I think... I was going to say we were virtually pointing at each other again. We did actually yeah. point this time. Yeah, I mean, I'll go first and just say, you know, I think for me, it's always so helpful um, to remember that these, you know, that these fundamental building blocks of science communication are so necessary um, because of the work that I do now. I can get very frustrated at, say, the lack of any kind of continuing education for science communication and, you know, all sorts of labor issues related to being a science communication practitioner and um, being undervalued, you know, all sorts of things that have to do with a very sort of full-time science communication career and trying to invent that as you go along, right? But I think, you know, it, it's it's really helpful for me and it happens when I touch in sometimes with graduate students um, at events when I'm reminded that, a lot of students have to fight for very fundamental time to even be able to do any kind of science communication work. And that, you know, starting well with these these building blocks of how to give a good presentation, design a good poster are just really so necessary. You know, they, they really are sort of how you, where you start and where you find your feet under you and where you practice. And uh, yeah, so thank you, Bruce. Yeah, thank you. And for me, it's really nice to have a conversation with someone who's out there in the trenches doing scientific communication. I've never had such a long conversation. In fact, the conversations I've had have very, been very brief with people who are working as scientific communicators. So both having the background of having read Facebook and then having this opportunity to talk to her and listen to um, her experiences as a scientific communicator and the struggles and the things that she's working with, it's really been very helpful to me. I have a much deeper understanding of what a person working as a scientific communicator does and faces. Okay, well, thank you. I mean, I feel like I've learned a lot too and could keep talking to you guys. This is so interesting, but I guess we'll we'll cut it off here and thank you for coming across the client with each other. <laughs> and thank you so much, Jess and Catherine, for hosting us and bringing this together and asking great questions. Yeah, thank you. Absolutely. Thank you both very much. That was such a cool episode. It was it was so nice to talk to people that have been thinking about science communication so much to the point where they wrote books about it. Um, and yeah, I think reading 
um, Bruce's book and through my own experience with teaching and science communication training, like it seems like there's this emphasis on like storytelling and narrative structure. Um, and I, and I have noticed that, but then I do feel like sometimes for me personally, I, I have a hard time following that narrative, following a narrative structure when telling, when talking about research. Um, and I, and I sort of started touching on it, like, you know, how do we, how do we talk about stuff that isn't your own research and like stuff like that, um, where you're just synthesizing a lot of research. Cause that's, that's what I've done with popular science pieces of my own in the past. Like I'll talk about like, like I have this one, um, article in natural history magazine that's just about like social insect diseases or like how social insects manage diseases and it's like three thousand words so it's super long um well relatively long and i just felt like i couldn't necessarily follow um you know a hero's journey story because i'm i'm not synthesizing just one um one uh research experiment or like the same labs research experiments um, and so I don't know, I, I, I really want to follow that structure. And Bruce does have some suggestions in his book for like longer form doing that of having more like buts in this and but therefore. No. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know. What's your experience been, Catherine, with like storytelling and your research? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, my art show piece was based on the hero's journey and how that ties into the uh quote unquote, the scientific method. But I think a thing to remember with both of those is they are guidelines in a sense. Like we don't always stick with the scientific method. Sometimes you're just given a question by your PI or like, we have this cool methodology. Let's use it because that's the hot new shiny thing that we're going to get funding for. Um, And I do that similarly with stories, how uh, during our talk with recent faith about other formats of stories like more circleable uh storytelling and that is something i am interested in investigating because for me i think one of my struggles is how to make my research into a story where there's negative results and it's like you know it's like playing a video game and then you die halfway through the story and it's just over um, not necessarily over in terms of research, but it's not like a huge, you know, climatic ending and then a denouement to the end. Yeah, I mean, totally. That's kind of why I brought up that that article I was reading like that on just like different narrative modes, because like this typical hero's journey narrative structure is very like action oriented. Like there was this problem and we like solved it and like you know, and it, it doesn't have to be. I think what Bruce was saying is it's like it's actually can be very broad, like this hero's journey um, structure. And in his book, he like he he is able to like apply it to a lot of different contexts. But I just yeah, I just feel like it it does require like problem solution, you know, and I don't know if science is like always so clean, like because it's like like he even says like sometimes yeah solutions just lead to even more problems and and then also like 
side projects like your art piece, which which the listeners will get to hear about on a special episode coming out. But um, your art piece like showed like there is a side project island. Right. And then like we go on these side project quests and we come back into our main project maybe as a different person and and i like this idea of the hero's journey as like depicting the transformative nature of the process of science and and so i think that is cool um but you know uh it's so much less linear um than i think the hero's journey often is like the the typical just quest um and and so i don't know though because um you know when we're talking about science, people, the easiest narrative structure to follow is the hero's journey because it's what's so familiar to people through their through the media they consume. And whatever is familiar is going to be easier to understand. And so it's like, how do we find this balance of like changing up the narrative structures to be like maybe more realistic to like how the process of science is and have that form matching the content of the science, you know? Um, but also like, you know, tailor it to like, you know, an audience that is familiar with the typical hero's journey structure, you know, in a way that I think, I mean, I think part of having that hero's journey structure is to give your, like, if you're communicating a project to someone, you might be on a time crunch or if you're out of talk or, you know, just people interest will start to fade away. But I think it is nice to have that kind of, I don't know, little um, structure uh, inside to kind of guide you while you're talking. So you're not rambling on about your lit search that took you, you know, down 20 rabbit holes <laughs> that led your ultimate uh, hypothesis for something. Um and what I do like, though, I think maybe a good way to describe science and telling a story about science is that it's uh, it's a spiral, isn't it? Because then you finish a project that, like as Bruce says, that opens up new doors, new questions, and you keep going and going. And then sometimes you completely detour because you decided no, I don't like this area that I've fallen into. Yeah, that's true. And it can be like a spiral in a in a line in a, in a linear direction. Like it's going towards something maybe, but maybe not. Like, I don't know. But I, I think also like, yeah, bringing in like Faith's perspective too into in science communication of just like having this like very um, strong emphasis on empathy, trust, and like, um, kind of figuring out, you know, um, what your audience, like how, how they even want to hear the science, like in a conversation, you'll probably like be talking to someone and be like, and like, like see, you know, what piques their interest or what makes them gloss over. And so like, maybe part of our job too, is to just be really good listeners, you know, and, and, and be ready to like, try out and modify our narrative structure depending like maybe someone's really into this like side story that you start telling and and you know and like and you start bringing it back to circle around this invisible theme right in this lyrical mode I talked about in the podcast um and so you know because there's different people different different ways of like 
you know, I have so many friends, including myself, that are super ADHD. And like the way that we talk to each other is like, oh, this reminds me of this. This reminds me of this. And it's this very associative mode of communication. And we like explore a lot of stuff and circle around themes throughout hours of conversation um, and feel like we get somewhere. But that's, you know, that can also be super frustrating for some people. So I think it's like, you know, our job to like learn to be really good listeners, you know? Yeah, I agree with that. And I think storytelling in general for science communication, I think that falls into a greater sort of umbrella, I guess, of humanizing science and humanizing scientists to get over that stereotype of, you know, pristine, clean, white coat labs, you know, stoic, not emotional at all. Um, and I think the reason why stories are so popular, and I feel like we've mentioned the word story pretty much since the beginning of this podcast, uh, is so popular is because there is a connection that you form with who I was listening to you because it's, in a sense, your story. It, it might not be your research, but it could be like, oh, yeah, I was reading, you know, a cool paper about, I don't know, someone doing research in octopus or something. And I think having that human connection, kind of like with what we were talking about with Bruce and Faith about how to work in communities and like kind of she dispelled this information. It helps to have like a human that you already know that you already have a connection with. Yeah, and I and I like this emphasis on just like science communication as a form of making connections with people. Like, why you know we can treat it as that. Like, and I think that 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 is probably going to be, you know, um, a more enriching experience for both the scientists and the person listening. Is like, we're I'm I'm using this science communication to build a connection with you and to like tell you what. I think is really interesting in the world and to get feedback from you about what you think is interesting and like you can like learn from each other and and form this connection um, in this way that I think will build trust. Right. But it's but I guess it can't be like, you know, it can't be the the t sometimes problematic model of like I'm using science communication to almost like evangelize and convince people to like see it the way I do right so that's why we really do have to like you know like we started talking about at the end of of the episode like we have to um you know be careful about like completely shattering somebody's worldview um in efforts to try to convince them to see it like we do and to not like you know, a lot of times, like as scientists, we do have so much information on stuff and we've dedicated years and it's like the worst feeling ever for someone to just be like, oh, you like you don't know anything like when you spent like your whole like half of your life studying the thing that they're talking about. And so it's a lot of like uh, work for us, you know, like an, an introspection like Faith talks about a lot and mindfulness, right, to like be in that situation and to not get like super worked up and and be like, no, like, and then just start fighting with people, like, if they, if they're not going to see it your way, it's like, so we have, we have a lot of practice, or we, we might need a lot of practice, like, engaging with the, with misinformation directly, instead of trying to <laughs> just, like, overwhelm it with correct information. Like, I don't know, what, what do you think in, in that regard, Catherine, you asked that question at the end, what to do in the 
misinformation landscape. I know. I mean, especially right now, it is it is a landscape, <laughs> to say the least. Um, and I don't know, my first thought um, as you were talking is kind of figuring out how to pick and choose our battles, right? Like, and also the context. So I can see myself, if I'm talking about wildlife, um, I would probably make a clear distinction between venomous versus poisonous because those are different concepts. I love the adage of if it bites you and you die, it's venomous. If you bite it and you die, it's poisonous. But, and I can see in a different context where it doesn't really matter as much. Like this thing will be a danger to you regardless if you eat it or if it tries to bite you. And like getting boggled down by the sort of jargon isn't helpful. And there's like, you know, trends of scientists kind of disparaging on, um, you know, movies or TVs. Like that's not really the most accurate depiction of XYZ or something like that. But like, is it enough of a major factor to like impact? Like, you know, the constellations aren't correct in this one shot, in this one movie for five seconds. Is it that much? I mean, it can be informative, but I think it is partly the tone, the reasoning why you're doing this, all that factors in. And yeah, I don't know. I'll pass it back to you because I'm also on my rambling train. No, no, no. I, I like that. Like, and I, and I think we're like meta doing the diff- the lyrical mode of communication, right? Of like, <laughs> we are like circling around themes because yeah, like what you just said, you know, made me think about, you know, as I start to write science communication pieces that combine the arts and stuff like that, right? Like you maybe noticed this when you were making a art piece out of your science because um, surely other people in the class noticed that they had to figure out what was like the essence of the science of their their scientific concepts that they really wanted to get across like the the theme that was important right and then they had to just kind of go towards that goal of getting that theme across and and you know like I don't know I'm I'll just talk about another example that I'm working on now for the ComSciCon conference that you have to write a piece for it Um, and my piece is a science communication poem and so it's very much like this lyrical approach where yeah, I'm I'm thinking about the evolution of life from or I'm writing about the ev- evolution of life from, you know, um, the origin of the genetic code to endosymbiosis where mitochondria is formed to the origin of sex to um, single cellular things coming together to become multicellular things, those multicellular things coming together to form societies. And what I'm in that sense, it is like a linear, you could think of it as a linear trajectory, but actually evolution is, it didn't happen that way, right? Like um, these life forms just emerged like all over the place um, in different contexts and for different reasons and some stayed single cellular and stuff like that. And so I am writing this piece, like thinking about, okay, like what is the similarities across all those transitions And then I'm interweaving in my own development as an individual. So it's a really weird piece where it's like the origin of the genetic code and then a memory of myself. And then, the you know, like 
Um, and it's interspersed prose about my own life and the just the theme of individuality and becoming a more complex thing through like letting go of some of being free living and going towards a collective form and what you can achieve as a collective form, right? So for me, like I wrote this piece as like, this is the theme I want to talk about, how we are like these beings with this code for seeking connections and the the kinds of things that can arise through seeking connections, right? And then I'm subjectifying, you know, myself in it by subjectifying the scientists, which is what we talk about through talking about my own life in this very personal way, interwoven with the science and like what the science means to me is at the forefront. So I don't know how this is going to go. I don't know where I'll be able to publish this. But it is like this very different like approach of just like this is the essence and I will just circle around that essence. And I don't know, maybe that will be helpful for some people that need to do that. That sounds like a really cool poem and I hope to read it soon <laughs> or not soon. I don't know when your thing is actually due, but I'll send it to you when it's in a better form. <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, I think. Yeah, essence. That's well. First of all, my thought just went to. I don't know if you've seen the Dark Crystal, but that's where my brain went when you said essence. Anyway, that's that's a side note. Um, listeners, me. If you've seen the Dark Crystal, you're amazing. Love you. <laughs> but yeah, so I think yeah, I think again what I said about like humanizing the science. I think trying to boil it down into. I guess what it means to you is also a good way to connect to people. And I, I know like, you know, the common thing when people say when you're presenting is be excited and all that. And I think figuring out why something means to you, it might not be why that thing means to someone else, but it shows that, you know, you care about this thing and it seems like something that others should care about. And this goes back to what uh, Facebook was about which is you know listening and empathy all that and I think yeah just being more I guess I don't want to say in tune with our feelings but acknowledging our feelings acknowledging the feelings of whoever we're talking to as well as what knowledge they can bring in because even if they are uh, like spreading misinformation like there is you know, a reason for that. It's an experience they have. And it's, I mean, it's a small data set that they have, but it's how our brains work, right? It's it's our way of figuring out the world. I can see it being very evolutionarily useful because I touched this thing once it hurt me. I'm not going to touch it ever again. That's good for survival. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I, and I think that's a really good way of trying to like be empathetic, right? Is like people are spreading misinformation because they're afraid, right? Like I bring up the vaccine um, uh, thing where, you know, that that guy published that paper and, and people like spread that paper like crazy to, you know, in efforts to stop people from getting vaccines. And it's like they understood the science. Like, so it's it's really about like thinking about what drives people to certain interpretations. And I think that like we can get a better understanding of their interpretations and ultimately be more inclusive, I think, um, and like try to listen to multiple interpretations. Um, 
if we yeah if we come at it from a place of like oh like they're doing that because they're afraid and they they don't want people to get more sick or have worse viruses so that's why they're spreading it like um and so thinking about like yeah what like we have to get beyond just thinking the data speaks for itself if we communicate the data well. We need to, yeah, like form these connections, ask people how they how they interpret the data and then try to understand why they do it that way. And I think that's that's going to be that's going to require scientists to become to be OK with being, you know, humans and and getting vulnerable and like being prepared to be with people that are being vulnerable with them. Um, and so. Yeah, it's going to take a lot of self-work, I think. I, I don't know if it's, yeah. It, so we'll see. I'm excited about the future, though, for mm-hmm. sure. And I think about the features that they brought up, uh, both Bruce and Faith, about basically incorporating science communication into our training as scientists. It, it sounds really exciting. I mean, it's just beginning. And I can see, I mean, it can't be a job that we're doing it alone. Like you mentioned, connections. Like, I feel like we have so much to learn from uh, people who are normally working out in the public, uh, anywhere from, like, communication specialists to psychologists, improv, et cetera. Um, But to go back a little bit to what you said about, like, why do people spread misinformation or how does it get spread around? I think part of it, which ties into humanizing scientists is how charismatic a person is. I mean, that's why we have, you know, people who are influencers who have huge followings, um, whether or not uh, they like do good or bad things, it doesn't matter, but there's something about the way they present themselves or how they speak that is easy to connect with or that makes you feel like you want to connect with the person. Yeah, that that's true. I I don't want like the introverts to feel excluded, oh, you know, from being able to be effective. Because yeah, I think like yeah, there is this sense sometimes, and and I think Bruce's book deals more with this this um, extroverted, charismatic performance that you kind of have to put on sometimes for a big audience, and that's where you show your excitement, and your excitement is what gets people on board, even if they didn't actually care about it. But then there, I think there can be this whole other setting for for introverts to thrive, where there's one-on-one conversations with people, and you're building connections and um, learning what they care about, and you know, like being a good listener and having conversations one-on-one. And so I, I'm I'm hoping that like it's not only like charisma, um, but I don't know. <laughs> what do you think? Well, I don't think charisma ties in like directly to being introverted or extroverted or wherever on that spectrum. I think, you know, you can be charming in a way, whether you're really big and out there or if you're just more low key. But I think part of it is them. I don't want to say it's innate because I'm sure there are ways to learn to be more charismatic or to present yourself in a more welcoming manner. But yeah, I think that regardless of whether you're introverted or extroverted you can show or be a charismatic person totally it's just about being vulnerable like you know like being able to be like show your your insides like your excitement right like <laughs> you're laughing. like show your insides 
I don't even science. Why I sound like a scientist? Like so sciencey in my way of trying to talk about emotions. I mean, I'd like to. Well, I don't think I would survive showing anyone my like innards. <laughs> Proverbially. Um, I, and okay, so I, I, I do have to go soon, but I want to like leave leave on this note. I, I was just having a conversation with um, a, an indigenous elder um, from the Gaitsan people in the First Nations. And he was we were talking about like how to like have these communication bridges between different knowledge systems and people coming at stuff from very different perspectives right and and how to like not be like extractive in the process of like asking people like because I was really like worried about that like asking for advice from an indigenous elder right like not to just extract his knowledge and then you know use it um, without giving something back so I think that maybe also in science communication context we can think about this uh communication is like a trade you know but but having to get but what we realized is we had to get to know each other well enough to know what we each had to offer and what we each wanted in this trade and i think that was kind of like a beautiful thing like as we started getting to know each other um he got to know that like i know stuff about bees and that's what he was interested in and this specific aspect of bees and so then i could follow up and be like here's the bees in your area and like you know, given your interest, this is like, you know, I could tailor the information that I tell him about the bees based on like what he's trying to do, which he's trying to track like movement of peoples and stuff like that. So, you know, um, thinking about communication as an exchange, but really having to start out by just getting to know, you know, the person you're talking to. And and, and then that that like follow up, that reciprocity maintains um, connections and allows you to just keep building like a connection and a relationship with a person I think because it's it's bi-directional in that way so I'll leave with that like I thought that was a nice insight and maybe we can think about how to do that in science communication yeah that sounds super cool and I do agree um with that and you know communication is an exchange of information and how we should move away from the model of people are just buckets that knowledge is poured into you. <laughs> this podcast was brought to you by SciComm at UCR. You can find out more about us at SciComm.UCR.edu. And special thanks to our producer, Joshua Rieger, our wonderful guests, and you listeners. We'll see you next time on our journey across, across the, the Klein. Klein.